Hi, I am Ruth, if we've not met, part of the team here at KXE. And this morning, we are um, between sermon series at the moment. So I was given free reign to talk about anything I wanted to. And uh, when I was praying about what to speak about, I felt like there might be an invitation for us today to think a little bit about the inbreaking kingdom. And it's a time of the year when, you know, lots of fresh start, new academic year, summer is over. Um, and uh, uh, sorry, sorry, sorry to break it to you, summer is over. Um, and it feels like a moment for us just to take stock. And, and I feel like there's something about the inbreaking kingdom and a call on us as individuals and as a church um, to explore this morning. And last week, Colin spoke uh, beautifully about a call to rebuild an altar to the Lord in our lives, a kind of um, to be a people of prayer and faith as we seek revival, this kind of powerful and mighty move of God. And as I was reflecting on it um, on the talk, I got thinking about the number of times that a revival um, in the in the in the world in history has uh, been a spiritual revival has gone hand in hand with a ch the church sort of waking up to issues of social justice and social action and the, a move of outreach happens so often simultaneously to a move of the power of the spirit and I feel like that might be the invitation maybe even a bit of a challenge from the Lord to be a people who intercede for a transformational outpouring of the Holy Spirit and at the same time intercede for social change, seeking to care for the, the vulnerable, those on the margins, actively seeking to pursue justice. There are a number of identifying features about KXC, phrases we repeat, kind of values that we hold important, and one of them will always be to make space for the work of the Spirit, to believe in the very real and tangible presence of, of God at work in our lives. And one of the others is the belief that God is making all things new. That there is this arc of redemption and transformation that creation is on. The kingdom of God is being made manifest. And here's the thing about this. This isn't a passive belief. We don't sit, sit back and just kind of watch waiting for redemption to happen. The invitation is to be proactive to take the stirrings that we sense, the call of Jesus on our life, and to actively pursue the inbreaking kingdom, to be intentional in our intercession, to pray for healing with specificity and conviction, to seek justice, to work for the inclusion of the outcast. And I think they go together. As we seek the presence of Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit within us changes us. And encounter with the grace of God causes us to want to share it. As we encounter Jesus, in the, as we experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, when there is revival, God moves in power. And I think we can't help but act in mercy and justice. So I want to think a little bit about what this might mean for us through the lens of the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 um, with just a couple of fish and a few barley loaves. Um, but first of all, a little uh, niche fact about me. Um, <laughs> I really love apocalyptic dystopian fiction. I told you it was niche. It's one of my favorite genres of books, TV shows, and movies. I like the really like stupid, funny ones. I also like the really scary, horrific ones. I like the end of humanity, com complicated, the end of the world has arrived ones. I like watching them. I like reading them. 
And I have a housemate who is an English scholar. And um, let's just say she doesn't have the same refined taste as I do. Um, so she's much more likely to read Austin or Hardy than watch the latest psychological thriller with me. Um, but she's a teacher. And a while ago, she was um, planning a lesson looking at young adult dystopian fiction, which, by the way, young adult dystopian fiction is the best of the genre. <laughs> Um, so, of course, being an expert, she wrote me in to help. And anyway, we're chatting about the, um, the kind of the features of this genre and why I love it so much. And one of the things that struck me was that there's this really common trope of um, the evil baddie or an evil force and then the plucky rebellion that manages to turn the tide of history and so bring judgment on the e evil people and justice for the oppressed and forgotten. And often dystopian fiction is really binary. There is good and there is bad. There is right and there is wrong. There's this promise of judgment and redemption. The evil will be overcome. The good side always prevails. And I realized that one of the reasons why I love this genre is because I love the clarity in it, the clarity of goodness and evil that I see in it. There's extreme darkness, deep and profound tragedy, but there are moments of light. You know, humanity rises above. Uh, I volunteer as tribute. Thank you for getting the reference. <laughs> Love conquers hate, and always there's this promise that the good will eventually prevail, evil will be defeated. And in the Gospels, in the ministry of, of Jesus, we see this campaign that has been launched against evil, this inbreaking kingdom of God that elevates the poor and the vulnerable. It welcomes in the outcast. It restores social injustices. It speaks against oppression. It declares that light is shining brightly in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And there's an invitation for us today, I think, to reconnect with this truth, to experience it in our own lives, to be convicted by the Holy Spirit, to become available vessels actively seeking to bring the kingdom of heaven. And in the feeding of the 5,000, we see a little bit of something of what this might mean, to be a people moved by compassion, to be part of a miracle that demonstrates the abundance of the kingdom of heaven. And it's the only miracle, other than the resurrection, that is recorded in all four of the gospel narratives. It's a really important one. Um, I'm going to jump around between the different um, gospel accounts of it. But in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have this incident happening immediately after the death of John the Baptist. And John was Jesus' cousin. They were kind of close ministry companions. His death was a heartless beheading done by Herod. Um, and the news of it rocked Jesus. And we read in Matthew, um, when Jesus heard what happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus is in grief over the tragic death of his cousin and he withdraws for some alone time, but the crowds pursue him. And so this, then, is the first point I want to make. To be part of the inbreaking kingdom, we need to let ourselves be moved by compassion, even when it is costly, painful, or just interrupts our plans. As a, as a priest in the Church of England, it's kind of like part of my job to be pastoral, um, to have... Like <laughs> I don't know why that's quite so funny, to, to have time for people. Um, but how many times do I walk past someone who is in need thinking, I can't stop, I've got a really important meeting to get to. 
And we've got this space downstairs here at King's House, which is amazing, and it looks like a cafe from the outside, and people come in throughout the week thinking it's a cafe or looking for something, or, um, and it is, for anyone involved, it is costly to stop, you know, thinking about the emails you've got to do, your to-do list that you just have to get to later in the day. But if you ask any member of the staff who has ever stopped and had someone walk in and had a moment of connection with them, they will tell you it is the most beautiful part of their day. And growing up around ministry and working in churches, I can think of dozens of times when my plans were interrupted by someone with a need. And the only times I've ever regretted were the ones when I didn't stop. Jesus was at the end of himself in deep grief. And the disciples were weary, having been sent on a mission and coming back. They were looking for a moment to rest and recoup. But Jesus allowed himself to see the people in front of him, not as a task to get through, not as an irritating interruption, but through the lens of compassion. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And I'm sure you've heard before the meaning um, about this word compassion. And, and it's this, this idea sort of translates an idea about being moved in your very soul, in the depths of your being. Strong's um, Bible Concordance actually writes it as um, being moved as to one's bowels, which <laughs> sounds like a whole other thing. But Jesus, it's what it's trying to convey is that Jesus is looking at this crowd, these sheep without a shepherd, and he is moved into the core of his inner being with love and mercy. And so, he responds to their need to heal and teach them. When I was working in my kind of first like official job in church, um, I was in my early 20s and I'd been asked to lead some prayers on the persecuted church on like persecuted church Sunday and I took it really seriously. Um, it was a topic I felt passionately about. I read up all the facts. I read stories and testimonies. I prayed. I fasted in the week before. I became deeply moved by this sense of these of people that were um, like not just facts and figures, but my actual brothers and sisters in Christ and thinking, what would I do if my brother or sister were in harm? And one day I was going to stand in heaven next to them. What would I say to them? I got really like committed to this. Anyway, we get to Sunday morning. It's quite a big church. They have like three or four services and um, like a thousand odd people. So I'm stood up there and I get kind of two lines into the prayer and I start crying. And I'm not like, it's not like a little tear, like I'm sobbing and I have prepared these beautifully crafted prayers and I can't get a word out. And I was so embarrassed. I was not at the time one to show any emotion, especially not on a stage in front of hundreds of people. I thought I'd let myself down, I'd let the vicar down, I'd let God down. I couldn't get my words out. And I realized, obviously, afterwards, talking about it and thinking about it, I realized I hadn't actually let anyone down. I might have felt a bit stupid for getting so upset, but what was really going on was that I was connecting with God's heart. I was connecting with his heart for his children that were facing fear um, and danger and in danger for their faith. And it was my kind of first experience of really feeling the emotional reality of compassion. And of course, it had to be on a freaking stage. But anyway, <laughs> and ever since then, over the years, I find that it's not an unusual thing that if I'm praying for somebody in maybe prayer ministry, that I might feel myself moved to tears with compassion, to, to feel their pain deep in my soul. And as I've let that be okay, whether it's on the stage or praying for someone at prayer ministry or in private intercessions over people and situations, I've learned not just more about God's heart for the world, but more about God's heart for me. 
And I think our calling as a church is to be a community of mission, reaching out with the love of God, practically serving. But in order to do it, we need to feel it. We need to feel the agony of injustice, the pain of grief, the fear of living in poverty, the desperation of the broken. Henri Nguyen wrote, Compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter into the places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion challenges us to cry out with those in misery, to mourn with those who are lonely, to weep with those in tears. Compassion requires us to be weak with the weak, vulnerable with the vulnerable and powerless with the powerless. Compassion means full immersion in the condition of being human. And Jesus sees this crowd. He has compassion on them and he begins healing their sick and teaching them. And Mark writes it, by this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to their surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. Now this is total supposition and I'm like extracting from the text and filling out the gaps, but I like to think that the disciples were a little bit tired and hungry. Um, maybe getting a little bit tetchy, they were not supposed to, they were like, they'd just been out, they were supposed to be having a rest day and recouping together and instead they are sitting likely in the hot sun, hungry and thirsty themselves, probably irritated because Jesus just keeps on talking. And so they say to him, come on, these people are hungry, we're hungry, let's send them home and then Jesus looks at him, looks at the disciples and says, you feed them. And you can just imagine the eye roll of the disciples. And Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. And another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? So here is this young boy. He has five small barley loaves and a couple of small fish. This is a, a poor man's lunch, but he gives them up for Jesus. Maybe he was just trying to give Jesus himself something to eat. Or maybe this little boy had enough faith to realize that this tiny offering in the hands of Jesus could become a great feast. And so that's the second point of this story, I think, that we bring the little we have or already have in our hands, and Jesus does a miracle. I've got a friend called Phil who many years ago went over to East Africa and experienced firsthand some of the poverty of some of the communities in the region. And when he got back to England, he determined that he needed to do something about it. He had left school without any GCSEs or um, O-levels, this was a while ago, um, and he was working in a print factory. And he was walking to work one day and he was praying about what he had seen and what he could do and how he could you know, raise money or do something. And he felt God say, use what you've got in your hands. And Phil was like, I've got nothing. I've got no money. I've got no qualifications. I've got no experience. And God said again, really simply, use what you have already got in your hands. So Phil set to work. He chatted with his boss, um, who agreed he could have access to the print machines after his shift. He chatted to a supplier who offered to give him some free card, a friend who did a bit of design, and he started printing greeting cards. He got them stocked in a few shops and churches, and he started raising money to send to an organization in East Africa that worked with street children. And from that humble beginning, Phil went on a journey and over the last decades has set up several NGOs in Uganda that have worked to alleviate poverty for thousands of thousands of people. And they've done remarkable work. 
And it was all this from this man who said, I've got nothing to offer. I don't know anything. I've got no experience, no qualifications, no money, nothing. But he took this really simple, undervalued thing that he already had in his hands and he got to work. And in the story of Moses and the burning bush, we see when Moses is resisting the call of God on his life to set the Israelite people free from slavery, we see God say to Moses, what do you have in your hands? And Moses has the tool of his trade. It's a shepherd's staff. And this staff was then used in a series of miracles to convince Moses that the call really was from God. It was used um, in miracles to make Pharaoh let the people go. It was used to part the Red Sea. It brought water out of a rock in the desert. And all the time it was a symbol of the shepherd leader leading his flock from slavery to freedom. God used this piece of wood in Moses' hand to bring about freedom of an entire nation. He used the printing press in Phil's hands to change the life of thousands of people. He used the lunch of a poor village boy to feed thousands. And he will use whatever we have in our hands if we offer it up to him. A few weeks ago, we interviewed here Amy Dooley and Jess Bradley, who are part of the church and have recently set up a group um, to help those who are either trying to find work or in work um, and have some HR issues in in their job place. And both of them are just using their professional experience, what they do in their day job, their own personal experience of having been grateful for it or having needed support to make a difference in the lives of others. And it's a story that we know really well at KXE. You know, we've got Growing Hope that came from this church family, serving children with additional needs, brunch, serving the street population, prison ministry, debt counselling. We've got Ventures that is supporting those with new ideas and vision. And in November, they're going to be doing a gathering that's going to draw people together who have a vision or an idea to help respond to the cost of living crisis. And so the question I want to ask is, what do you have in your hands? Maybe it's some time. Maybe it's an idea. Maybe it's some vision. Maybe it's a call to intercede and seek a move of the Spirit. But what do we have in our hands? Bring the little that we have and watch Jesus do a miracle. One of the neat things that happened is Jesus said to the disciples, you know, you feed them. And they thought he was crazy, but they brought the little they had. Jesus did a miracle. And then who fed the crowd? Taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, Jesus gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. The disciples that felt that they had nothing, that didn't have anything to offer, they bought the little they had. Jesus has a miracle, and then the disciples get to feed the people. And when they'd all had enough to eat, Jesus said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. I love the excessiveness of this story. Five small barley loaves, two small fish, 5,000 men plus women and children, so somewhere around 10 to 20,000 people. Everyone ate all they could. And then at the end, they gathered the leftovers, and there were 12 baskets full. 12 basketfuls. Why on earth was that necessary? Like Jesus didn't just meet the needs of the crowd. He exceeded the needs of the crowd. He'd already been teaching them, he'd already been healing them, and now he provides for their very basic physical need of hunger with such abundance that there were 12 basketfuls left over. I've always wondered what happened to the leftovers. (laughs) It was a community of people that lived on the poverty line. They didn't have, you know, freezers full of meals and cupboards full of ingredients. But the the leftovers would not just have been like, you know, left to rot and thrown away. 
These 10,000 plus people who had traveled from all over the region were now going home to their families and their communities. And I like to think that each one of them loaded up their pockets with handfuls of leftovers, arriving home and saying to the friend, you will never believe what happened today. Thousands of people fed from just five loaves and a couple of fish. Here, I bought some for you. The needs of the crowd weren't just met, they were exceeded. Freely you've received, freely give. From the abundance that God has showered on us, healing, salvation, forgiveness, grace, love, mercy, we give to others. We bring others into the abundant life of the kingdom with no fear that we might somehow run out. You know, every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We are praying that the kingdom of God would break in And it is a kingdom of justice and mercy, of healing and redemption, a kingdom of deep spiritual revival and a kingdom of loving our neighbor as ourselves, of giving of ourselves for the lost and the lonely. As the miracle um, winds down, John writes, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And throughout the Gospels, we see this kind of clash between the expectation of the people for the type of king they wanted and the truth of the kingdom of heaven. The Jewish people were looking for a Messiah that would come charging in on a white horse and a big army and set Jerusalem free from the impression of Rome. This was what they expected But the kingdom of Jesus is a kingdom that feeds the hungry, not one with fancy horses and big swords. I've got a picture um, for you. This is a picture um, from a few years ago of me and um, someone I met, a little girl I met, Hanai, who was about four or five um, at the time. And I I met her in Guatemala where um, I was hosting, part of a group hosting a day of joy with International Justice Mission. And the aim of the day was to take children who were in the process of a prosecution case after having been sexually abused or trafficked and give them a day of lightness and joy. And Hanai had just recently finished giving testimony in a horrific case of um, family sex abuse and trafficking. And despite neither of us being able to speak a word of the other's language, we quickly became firm friends because I'm really good at animal impressions. (laughs) And as I swung Hanai around the zoo, I've got this moment, this image firmly fixed in my head. Her beautiful beaming smile as she looked up at me and giggled and laughed. Because at the same time as I was laughing along with her, I was acutely aware of the deep darkness that she was walking through. And I found myself caught up and deeply moved by this juxtaposition, deep, heartbreaking darkness and the shining of innocent joy. And this is the kingdom of heaven. This is the good news that's broken in. You know, IJM also work on kind of big picture justice um, system transformation um, and human trafficking, slave labor, child sex abuse. And they've got stories of countries they've worked in um, where they've been able to see actual transformation of the entire justice system. And sometimes we will only see redemption the other side of glory. For some tragedies in our life and in our world, we will only see God's justice and redemption when Christ returns. But the promise of the inbreaking kingdom of God is that we see glimpses of it here and now. The incarnation of Jesus was this inauguration of a new kingdom. Through his death and resurrection, he conquered evil, victory over sin, death and the devil. 
What we live in, the, in now is the now and not yet of the kingdom in anticipation and hope of the final victory of God. And we will see it. And in the meantime, we are invited to usher it in, whether it's through working to change the systems of a whole nation or swinging a little girl around a zoo. The promise is of joy in the midst of despair, redemption from the very pit of hell, freedom from captivity, innocence restored, and light shining in the darkness. And so I think the invitation for us today is to make space for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives to convict us, to reveal to us to us the level of our own brokenness and the brokenness in the world around us, and then moved with compassion to act, even if it costs us something, to bring what little we have, whatever is already in our hands, to be bold, to take a risk, and then to let Jesus do the miracle, and then to get to see and be part of an abundant kingdom miracle as lives are changed and people are set free.